Okay. You know you don't have to act with me, Steve. You don't have to say anything and you don't have to do anything. Not a thing. Oh, maybe just whistle. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. Joining me today to swap shots between drinks or drinks between shots is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as the Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. On today's episode, Nakia and I are celebrating Noir-vember with a hard-boiled Hollywood classic, Howard Hawks' The Big Sleep from 1946, starring Bogey and Bacall. Nakia will get to this film, one of my all-time favorites, in a few minutes. But first, I wanted to talk about Bogey and Bacall. Okay. You and I watched The Maltese Falcon early in our podcasting days, Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's no doubt that these two movies have a lot in common. But the biggest difference between them for me is that the female lead in The Maltese Falcon, Mary Astor, is no Lauren Bacall. She was fine, but she was not an equal sparring partner for Humphrey Bogart. And together they could not begin to match the crackling on-screen, off-screen chemistry of Bogey and Bacall. Okay. In 1944, when they met, Bogart was one of the top five biggest male stars in the world. After years of playing bit parts and bad guys, he'd broken through as a leading man with 1941's High Sierra and the Maltese Falcon, and then cemented his leading man status with the Academy Award winner for Best Picture of 1943, Casablanca. Bacall was 19 years old. When Casablanca came out? In 1944, when, when she met Bogart. Okay. She had been a model as a teenager. She was in Vogue and had appeared on the cover of Harper's Bazaar. Mm -hmm. That is where director Howard Hawks first saw her and sort of sent for her. I think what he said was that he told his secretary to find out who she was. Mm -hmm. And his secretary misunderstood and just sent her a plane ticket and flew her out to Hollywood for an audition. However it happened. He met with her and signed her to a seven-year contract on the spot. Again, she was 19 years old. She'd done a little theater, but was completely untrained as a film actress. She says that he told her he had in mind for her first film to cast her with either Cary Grant or Humphrey Bogart. And she said, I thought, Cary Grant, terrific. Humphrey Bogart, yuck. (laughs) (laughs) But in fact, her first movie was with Humphrey Bogart to have and have not. He was 44, 25 years older than her. And she was playing his love interest? Mm Mm-hmm. Inappropriate. All right. (laughs) (laughs) And he was in a famously unhappy marriage with actress Mayo Metho. Their fights were legendary. They were apparently known around Hollywood as the battling Bogarts. They both drank too much. They (laughs) fought all the time. But he and Bacall clicked. Mm-hmm. obviously, pretty much right away. How does a 44-year-old click with a 19-year-old, exactly? <laughs> Have you seen Lauren Bacall? That is beside the point. <laughs> Apparently not. 
and I'm not, this is not to diminish 19-year-old Lauren Bacall, but what does a 19-year-old exactly have to offer emotionally, intellectually, to an established 44-year-old actor? Other than <laughs> a nubile frame. Now that, okay, not, that is way condescending. She's not, if she's there's... a strong, intelligent woman. Uh, at 19, at 19, you just aren't a fully developed person. You just aren't. Didn't people grow up earlier back okay, then? Okay, so now we're just going to make this okay. All right, go ahead. <laughs> this is not about Lauren Bacall being unworthy. It's about at 19, there's a lot of growth and development between 19 and 44 that I think is very important. Sure. Okay, I'll buy that. And I don't, like, I don't even know what I would talk to a 19-year-old about <laughs> now. And that's not to diminish the 19-year-old. It's just like, I don't know what the fuck. I, I could think of a few things. And so now we're getting divorced. <laughs> so... Their on-screen chemistry was mm -hmm. so immediate that they actually rewrote the script. Uh, originally, Bogart had another love interest. There was another character in the film who was supposed to be his primary love interest. Mm -hmm. And they threw the script in Hemingway's novel out the window and rewrote it to make it about he and Lauren Bacall. A 44-year-old and a 19-year-old. Okay, you're just going to keep coming back to that. Because it seems sort of important. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, they hooked up. Mm-hmm. And it was a big secret because, again, he was married. Everyone was opposed to it, including Howard Hawks, who was in love with Lauren Bacall as well. They carried on this affair after the movie came out and Bacall was catapulted into sudden fame. Apparently, there was a period of vacillation where he kept going back to his wife. He wasn't quite willing to completely break it off with her, but he was still seeing Bacall on the side. It's a really good relationship. Okay, you were just <laughs> turning against this. And then in uh, 1945, he finally divorced Mayo, and 11 days after the divorce came through, Bogey and Bacall were married. Again, nobody thought it was going to last. Uh, apparently, her mother tried to talk her out of marrying, quote, an elderly alcoholic. Good job, Mom. <laughs> Howard Hawks, who again, was also trying to get into bed with Lauren Bacall, warned her that Bogey would never be faithful. But they were together the rest of Bogart's life, which was about 12 years later. Bogart died of esophageal cancer in 1956, leaving Bacall a widow with two children at the age of 32. That's the only benefit of dating an older man when you're younger is that you could... You, you get it out of the way quick. Yeah, you could start over. <laughs> you're still good. <laughs> she did. She went on. She had a brief relationship with Frank Sinatra. Mm. And then she eventually married Jason Robards and had a couple of kids, I think, with Jason Robards. But they were a Hollywood power couple. Mm -hmm. The original Rat Pack was centered around them before Sinatra took it over. They were part of what became known as the Committee for the First Amendment, which is a group of Hollywood stars and directors that stood up to McCarthyism. Mm -hmm. But what, what I was thinking about in regards to this is, you know, you will see, and obviously you have already formed opinions about <laughs> this, but you will see them referred to as Hollywood's greatest romance of all time as the most iconic Hollywood couple of all time. And I was trying to think, is that still a thing that happens? Iconic Hollywood couples? Yes. I think that is still a thing that happens. I don't know that it happens to the level of Bogey and Bacall, but it's definitely still a thing. I mean, you have Liz and Dick, which was... Liz and Dick was probably one of their chief competitors. Mm -hmm. That was more tumultuous, however. Yes, they it were. Was. You know, married and divorced about nine times, I think. But that was also a part of what made them sort of tabloid fodder. And, uh, absolutely, and sort yes. of elevated the profile of the relationship. Right. So, 
Um, and I imagine was also part of why the relationship was so rocky. Mm-hmm. More contemporary, you have Brangelina, or you had Brangelina. They divorced. Uh, well, okay, but wait. So first we had Brad and Gwyneth. There's Brad and Gwyneth. And then there was Brad, Brad and, and Jennifer Aniston. Jennifer Aniston. So he has been in a few. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like Warren Beatty's one of those guys. It was Warren Beatty and Julie Christie were the mm-hmm. big couple. And then it was Warren Beatty and Diane Keaton were the big couple. Mm-hmm. And then the one that has lasted is Warren Beatty and Annette Bening. Annette, yes. I think they're still together. And I believe they are. It may just be that Warren got old. For <laughs> it's highly, like 90% of it is that Warren got old. He's tired. Um, yeah, I mean, I think part of it is probably, you know, when you are acting opposite someone that you are pretending to be in love with, it probably becomes a little bit easier to actually fall in love with them. You're both very beautiful. You're sure, both very that's rich. Stage and, romances are you know, a real thing. And, you know, it makes good business sense. Uh, so... I'm not surprised that it happens. I mean, it doesn't always result in something as fruitful as Bacall and Bogey's sort of relationship in terms of the, their films. I mean, there was the notorious Jennifer Lopez Ben Affleck oh, God. relationship, which Geely <laughs> I didn't see, but based on all accounts, was just a terrible film. Yeah, and then there was Jersey Girl. I also didn't see, but it wasn't as panned as Geely, but I don't remember it being considered a good film. No, and I feel like if you want to make a claim towards Hollywood icon couple, you need to make at least a couple of good movies. Well, do we count music videos? Because he was also, he starred in uh, her Jenny from the Block music video. Mm, Let me think about that. No, we don't count that. (laughs) Which is them on a yacht and he's like rubbing on her ass for five minutes. It's just, it's very, they look odd (laughs) together, quite frankly. Um, And it was mostly like, he's- I'm going to guess that that. Ben Affleck has about as much natural rhythm as I have. Well, I don't think, he wasn't dancing, thankfully, but he was sitting on a yacht caressing Jennifer Lopez's ass, which, understand the impulse, but he just, it just didn't, the optics were not great. But then, I mean, for me, if we're talking sort of classic Hollywood iconic couples, you can't get any better than Ruby Dee and Ossie Davis. Yeah. Well, they were together about 60 yeah, years. Yeah, they were together a very long time. Mm. And it was two people who had tremendous talent separately. But when they showed up together, it was, I mean, do the right thing, raising in the sun, mm-hmm. roots. I mean, they did some amazing projects together. And not only that, they were also very... Um, involved in the civil rights movement so they mm-hmm. were just sort of these sort of forces of art and activism right. um so that's probably like the, that's my if i'm gonna pick a favorite my favorite hollywood couple would be ruby d and ossie davis and even that like the the idea of like oh they're a hollywood couple seems to diminish what they actually were and i they also weren't victims to the trappings of what usually comes with that like it wasn't oh they were in the tabloids all the time and people were wondering you know what's going on with ossie and ruby d and right. all up in their relationship right. it was really about the art and the work that they were doing Whereas I think when we say Hollywood couple are, you know, you think of the sort of portmanteaus and you think of the tabloid pieces. Right. And, it's, it's the combination of glamour and right, gossip. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I do think the long term stable couples mm-hmm. probably get overshadowed mm-hmm. by that. Mm-hmm. Ruby and Aussie is one of those. Paul and Joanne, Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward mm-hmm. were together 50 years. Um, this is older, but Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy were together about that long. Mm-hmm. Today, I think uh, Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson have been together 30-some-odd years at this point. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's not as much fun as, you know, Liz and Dick. (laughs) 
breaking up and getting back together a hundred times. <laughs> and looking fabulous while doing it. Of course. Yes. And then you do wonder, too, I mean, like I said, Bogey and Bacall were together 12 years because mm-hmm. he met her late and died early. Yep. So, you know, you and I have been together longer than Bogey and Bacall were yes. together. The age difference is less problematic, but yes. <laughs> yeah, not not quite as extreme. <laughs> So are you wondering if they would still have been together had Bogey not? Well, who knows? I mean, I think if we look at modern couples like, you know, I don't know how long Brangelina was together. <laughs> not long. But it was probably about that, right? It was um, probably 10 or were, 12 years. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it depends on when you start counting, right? Like, there are people that say they started, they fell in love on the set of um, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. But, okay, they clearly did. But he was still <laughs> dating Jennifer They are Aniston. basically fight-fucking so, throughout that entire movie. You know, technically, they weren't officially dating until, you know, after he'd broken up with, with Jennifer Aniston. Uh, so yeah. it depends on where you start counting. But yeah, sure. That's the exact same situation that was going on in this movie we're watching this week. <laughs> Uh, this was, it wasn't released until 1946, but it was actually made in 1944, right after To Have and Have Not. Mm -hmm. And then they held it back until the war was over. But this is very early in their relationship. They are clearly madly in love. The sexual tension is high. They were having an affair at this point. Um, And that is on screen in this movie. And I think that's also true of Mr. and Mrs. Smith. (laughs) They were very hot together. Whatever the official story is. All right. Do you have any other favorite couples? Not really. I mean, you have the classics, the Kurt and Goldies. Um, (laughs) Are they still together? They are. I believe they are still together. Will and Jada have been together for a very long time. I don't think that they've been on screen together very much. They were in Ali. And I'm wondering if I can't remember if she guest starred in Fresh Prince or not. She may have. But they've been together forever, and they have their children and have basically turned their family into its own little sort of empire. So that's definitely an example of, like, longevity and, you know, whatever their relationship is, it seems to be working for mm-hmm. them. So, And they aren't they aren't talked about a lot. There's sometimes speculation about, you know, whether or not they have an open relationship. Um, and then there's, spe- like, the Scientology thing sometimes comes up. But for the most Makes part... Makes everything weird, yeah. Yeah, for the most part, they actually aren't sort of gossip fodder very much. Mm-hmm. Um, so that may be the key to it is being able to sort of find that balance between having the relationship that, as crass as it is, is a business to a certain extent, but also being able to sort of protect it. Right. Um, who else? Penelope and Javier are just two gorgeous people. Oh, that's a pretty couple. Being yeah. gorgeous together. And it is a shame that I can't really enjoy Vicky Cristina Barcelona anymore uh, because of the Woody Allen connection. We need to see the new one, which is out now, though. The El Motivar, they're both in. That's right. They are in the new El Motivar. Yes, so we do need to check that out. But again, that's another couple that you don't hear a lot about mm-hmm. their personal life, right. really. And they are oftentimes on red carpets, not together. So all I can base it on is the pure vanity of just like, I think they are gorgeous together. <laughs> <laughs> And Courtney B. Vance and Angela Bassett have oh, been yes. together a yeah. very long time. And they are both really brilliant actors and two of the most just like effusive, supportive people of each of each other that I, I've sort of seen in that that realm. And again, not really in tabloids, mm-hmm. not really, you know, their relationship is very sort of sacred to them. But yeah, he's always just like, you can tell that he's totally in love with her and totally just proud of they're, her. They're cute together they're on the red together. and stuff. So yeah, that's, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see what you think of uh, the Bogey and Bacall pairing in this movie. It sounds like you've already developed some opinions about it. Totes and approps. <laughs> 
But sure, I'm sure she was a very mature 19-year-old. You and I are 12 years apart, so uh-huh. that's just twice the age difference. Yeah, it's a big difference between 19 <laughs> and I was in my 20s when we met. So, mm-hmm. you know, still, if I was advising someone in my shoes at that age, I would be like, no, you're too young. Like, don't. He's no. old as shit. But, you know. The good news is I'm probably going to die early, too. And so then, then I can be, just go on and marry Frank over. Sinatra, so that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't I pay to see that? <laughs> Did you have reservations about marrying him? None. 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 Well, when, I, when you're 20 years old, why would I have a reservation? Well, he's 40, whatever he was. I didn't care. He was younger than I was in many ways. He was 45. Yeah. But I mean, and because he, uh, I ha- he had more energy than I did. You know, when you're 20, you're like a, a limp rag. But I mean, he, he could keep going uh, all night. I mean, he was amazing. But no, because I was so... I was so mad about him that I just, I was like a fool. I was an idiot, you know, and I was, and he, he was more than I ever thought I would ever have in my life. Okay, so let's segue right into talking about this movie. So, as we've discussed before, the film community has now embraced November as Noir-vember. Can I just, I hate that word. I don't. <laughs> a term originally coined by Maria Gates at Turner Classic Movies. It's just so awkward in the mouth. noir <laughs> noir <November. laughs> Hashtag noir November. We don't even get Turner Classic Movies anymore. Can we do this little moment of like, sure. what the fuck, Comcast? What the shit, Comcast? <laughs> Comcast has now packaged Turner Classic Movies with a bunch of sports channels. And if you want it, you have to pay for the sports channels you don't want. So, yeah. That's... So, now I'm pissy about that. <laughs> Nonetheless, mm-hmm. November is now a month-long celebration of film noir, and we like to join in on that. And I think, the awkward name aside, November is perfect for this purpose. It's moody weather, moody film. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Everything is gray, the light is fading, everything is dying. Mm-hmm. We're all walking around in long coats and hats and shitty, cynical moods, so <laughs> I think it, it feels perfect to me. Last November, we did a Femme Fatale double feature, watching Billy Wilder's classic noir Double Indemnity and Lawrence Kasdan's neo-noir Body Heat. Do you remember either of those movies? Vaguely. Okay. And as I said, we also earlier in the podcast watched The Maltese Falcon. Uh, I think that's where we had an actual discussion about film noir. Mm -hmm. And we've watched, I think, a couple of other things that are at least noir adjacent, like Sunset Boulevard. Mm Mm-hmm. And here's the peculiar thing about all these movies. I think you liked all of them. I don't I have to revisit the records. Okay. I don't I don't know about that. <laughs> I I know you did and we have the record. <laughs> People can listen to those episodes and hear how you liked Show me the tapes. All of those movies. <laughs> okay, let me show you some, let me show you the tape. <laughs> I don't actually have to listen to myself, do I? Yeah. Oh dear. This is you on This could be doctored. <laughs> There's all kinds of technology. You think I got now. deep fake technology? Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. This is some fake news. This is you on the Maltese Falcon. Okay. All right. Well, it sounds like you actually enjoyed the Maltese Falcon. I did. I was. I did not hate the Maltese Falcon. <laughs> I would recommend the Maltese Falcon without qualification. You wow. don't even have to have mono. Just go watch the Maltese Has Falcon. Has this ever happened before? I don't think so. Okay. It's maybe the first time. <laughs> so you're excited to watch more of these types of film movies? noir? Um, sure. Yeah, they're fun. They're zippy. So what I said was I didn't hate it. Uh, no, what you said was you would recommend it without qualification. But before that, I said I didn't hate it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually I do remember enjoying the Maltese film. Okay. 
Do you actually remember anything about it? Um, it's cocaine, right? Nope. <laughs> Jesus. Um, the bird was cocaine. That's what you said. It was full of cocaine. That's what you said before we watched the movie. <laughs> and the whole point of watching the movie is so you could actually be familiar with it. And that now you've just gone back to your misconceptions. Packaged cocaine. There's literally no point in our doing in this at all. I remember. Uh-huh. It, <laughs> I can't remember what the fuck the point of the bird was. Um... But I remember the woman looked fabulous. <laughs> well, that's what's important. And then there was the question of like whether or not she was actually in love with him at the end, or mm-hmm. if it was she was trying to get out of. Wasn't she getting like the death penalty or something? Yeah, he basically sent her, sent her to the gas yeah, chamber. I, at yeah, the I end remember of the that. Movie. Where he was like a dick to her at the end. It was just and like he, yeah. He was like, if you die, you die. Yeah, if not, you that's know, what I remember. maybe I'll be waiting for you when you get out. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things I think we, during that discussion, I think we talked about the fact that the term film noir is is used a couple different ways. Sometimes it describes a film genre, mm-hmm. and sometimes it describes a style of filmmaking. Okay. Um, and we don't need to get into all of that now. I think the big sleep, though, is in the noir film genre. Stylistically, I don't think it's particularly noirish. Okay. It doesn't have a lot of the things that we that we think of as being film noir. It doesn't have voiceover narration. It doesn't have flashbacks. It doesn't have the kind of expressionistic mm-hmm. style, the sort of Dutch camera angles, the extreme angles, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. It's filmed much more like just like classic Hollywood movie. But it is a hard-boiled detective story, cynical, witty banter, incredibly confusing plot. <laughs> So it has those elements. Directed by Howard Hawks, who was one of the great old Hollywood legends. He he was one of those guys who did everything in the old Hollywood system. Mm-hmm. So he did screwball comedies. He did gangster movies. He did westerns. He did musicals. I was trying to think if you'd seen anything. Have you seen Gentlemen Prefer Blondes? Marilyn Monroe. Is that the one where she wears glasses? No, that's How to he- Marry a Millionaire. No, I don't okay. think I've seen Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Okay. And How to Marry a Millionaire is probably your only Lauren Bacall movie, too. It is Lauren Bacall, yes. Yeah. okay. <laughs> um, this was based on the novel by Raymond Chandler, of course, written by Lee Brackett, Jules Firthman, and William Faulkner. Oh, okay. Faulkner did a lot of, lot of screenwriting around that time. Um, I believe he worked on Gone with the Wind as well. Of course he did. <laughs> he was, do you remember Barton Fink? Yes. The... The old Southern writer, mm-hmm. that was William Faulkner. Yep. The one whose girlfriend was actually writing everything? Yeah. <laughs> and as I mentioned, the plot of this movie is famously confusing. Mm-hmm. There are, I think, seven different murders in the movie, on screen and off screen, and keeping track of who killed who has proven impossible, <laughs> even for Raymond Chandler. The famous story about this is that, it's not a particular spoiler, early in the film, a character we never meet, a chauffeur, is found floating in his car off the pier. Mm -hmm. And the story is that supposedly Bogart came into the production office one day while working on this movie and asked Howard Hawks, hey, who killed that guy? Hawks didn't know. Everything stopped. They sent a telegram to Raymond Chandler to ask him who murdered that guy or did he commit suicide? What happened to that guy? Right, right. And Chandler has admitted that his response was, damn it, I don't know either. (laughs) So So, It's a good foundation. 
plot, not that clear. Mm -hmm. And it's confusing for a lot of other reasons as well, which we can talk about. It has to do with the Hayes Code, the, you know, the censorship, stuff they couldn't say right. about what was going on. As Roger Ebert says, it is typical of this most puzzling of films that no one can agree even on why it is so puzzling. <laughs> But, as Ebert also writes, that has never affected the big sleep's enduring popularity. Some bad guys get killed and others get arrested, and we don't much care, because the real result is that Bogart and Lauren Bacall end up in each other's arms. The big sleep is a lust story with a plot about a lot of other things. What you sense here is the enjoyable sight of two people who are in love and enjoy toying with one another. And one of the reasons I wanted to watch this movie with you, speaking of confusing plots, mm -hmm. is I think it's the clear foundation for your favorite movie of all time, The Big Lebowski. <laughs> okay. The Big Lebowski is the big sleep with this stoner slacker guy <laughs> in the lead role. As Philip Barlow. Okay. Cool. I mean, the plot is not exactly the same, but I think you will recognize many of the elements. Mm-hmm. I don't, do you, do you feel like you could actually recount the, the plot of The Big Lebowski if I asked you to? So Are the, you clear on every... The plot is beside I'm not point. asking you to do that, I'm just asking if you could. I think I could. <laughs> I think, I actually think I could, I know I can make, I can connect all the dots in The Big Lebowski. Okay. Except for... <laughs> Larry. Who Sellers. the hell is Larry? The kid where oh, they find his homework in the yeah. car. Like that's the one part. Is this where your just, homework, Larry? Is this your homework, Larry? Okay, you're unclear on Larry. I'm unclear on where Larry. Larry is the chauffeur played into of that. Mm -hmm. into the into the the film, but <laughs> it's an excellent scene with Larry. But I don't know how he factors into any of the stuff that happens. But you started to say the plot is not the point, right? Because it's just, you're just enjoying the ride. And part of the appeal of that film is the total just absurdity of it. And it's sort of how we connect with the dude. It's like, because he has no idea what the fuck is going on either. So, of course, we don't <laughs> right. know what the fuck is going on. Right. Um, so, it's just, it's part of the mood of that film. Okay. Well, I think that's that's the perfect mood to go into this movie on. Okay. So, let's go do that. All right. <laughs> so, you're a private detective. I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Ah, oh, you're a mess, aren't you? <laughs> I'm not very tall, either. Next time I'll come on stilts, wear a white tie, and carry a tennis racket. I doubt if even that would help. Now, this business of Dad's, think you can handle it for him? That shouldn't be too tough. Really? I would have thought a case like that took a little effort. Not too much. What will your first step be? The usual one? I didn't know there was a usual oh, one. Oh, sure there is. It comes complete with diagrams on page 47 of how to be a detective in 10 easy lessons, correspondence school textbook, and uh, your father offered me a drink. You must have read another one on how to be a comedian. Hear what I said about the drink? I'm quite serious, Mr. Marlowe. My father's not father... help yourself. Now, look, Mr. Marlowe. My father's not well, and I want this case handled with the least possible worry to him. That's just the way I was going to handle it. I see. No professional secrets. No. Nope. I thought you wanted a drink. I changed my mind. Then what? How did you like Dad? I liked him. He liked Sean. Sean Regan. I suppose you'll know who he is. Uh-huh. You don't have to play poker with me, Mr. Marlowe. Dad wants to find him, doesn't he? Do you? Of course I do. It wasn't right for him to go off like that. Broke Dad's heart, although he won't say much about it. Or did he? Why don't you ask him? You know, I don't see what there is to be cagey about, Mr. Marlowe. And I don't like your manners. Well, I'm not crazy about yours. I didn't ask to see you. 
I don't mind if you don't like my manners. I don't like them myself. They're pretty bad. I grieve over them long winter evenings, and I don't mind you ritzing me or drinking your lunch out of a bottle. But don't waste your time trying to cross-examine me. People don't talk to me like that. Oh. And we're back. During the break, Nikki and I watched The Big Sleep. Nikia, this movie actually exists in a couple of different forms. What we watched was the final, and to me, superior theatrical cut. There was actually an earlier version. What happened was they filmed this movie in 1944 during the war. It was supposed to come out in 45, but then the war was coming to an end. Warner Brothers had a backlog of war-related movies Mm -hmm. to release, so they moved all those up and pushed this one back to 1946. The other thing that happened in that time is that Bogey and Bacall became big news. So, uh, one other thing happened. Bacall's second movie came out, Confidential Agent, with Charles Boyer, and she got shitty, shitty reviews for it. No. So, partially at the urging of her agent, they reshot a lot of the big sleep to ramp up her part, to ramp up the sexual chemistry between her and Bogart. Mm -hmm. And then some things got cut as well in that re-edit, including a scene apparently between Bogey and the cops where Bogey explains the entire plot of the movie. Would have been helpful. Okay. (laughs) So... I, I don't think, the, personally, I don't think the movie needed that. Mm-hmm. And that's actually what Howard Hawks said after he saw the reaction to this movie. He said something like, I, I was worried about it, but after this movie, I decided I never need to worry about logic ever again. Because <laughs> audiences don't care as long as you have enough good scenes. Uh, but maybe we should start there. Do you want to just explain the plot of the movie? I cannot do that for you. Why not? Because it makes absolutely no sense. It makes perfect sense. It makes no sense. First of all, it was written not making sense, as you mentioned at the top of the... <laughs> the fact that Raymond Chandler didn't even Raymond know who killed know one of those people. who killed one of, the, one of our victims. And then two, I think so much of it is not said or said in a really just convoluted way because of the Hayes Codes that... Yeah. It's just... I, I don't know what the fuck just... I mean, that <laughs> that is the root of the problem <laughs> like more, than, more than anything else. Is that this is a movie about pornography. Right. There's homosexuality. There's nudity. There's nymphomania. Mm -hmm. There's drug use. Mm -hmm. And none of that... Can be talked about. Could be talked about in this movie. So that, like I said, that just makes it all way more confusing Mm -hmm. than it needs to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I... You know, you made the comparison at the beginning of the show to The Big Lebowski. The Big Lebowski, I felt like I could follow. Like, it was ludicrous. <laughs> I, I don't think you could, actually. But I feel like I could I don't feel like you could Lebowski. recount. I think I You've can. seen that movie 174 times. That's true. And I, I'm not sure you could recount the But at least in The Big Lebowski, either. I think we at least meet all the people that die. I mean, this movie, <laughs> there were at least two people who were pretty important Who live and die off screen. In the, in the story that we never meet and don't know anything about and so it's just and then at about three quarters of the way through the movie they start introducing new characters Mm -hmm. which i think is very helpful it's just (laughs) i yeah i gave up i just stopped caring and started just sort of glazed over okay but did you nonetheless enjoy the movie it was good i didn't love it oh no yeah um I think, and this um, this probably makes me, you know, a cultural pariah or something, but I just, I think I have a limit for the bogey thing. Hmm. He has 
pretty much one speed in the films that we've watched. And then, granted, we've only watched, I think, the two. This is now our second one. This is our, the second one we've watched for um, this, yes. And I think the only other one you've seen is... Casablanca. Oh, no, Sabrina. You said you've seen Sabrina, yeah. too, right? But I, he doesn't strike me as an actor that has a lot of range. No, I mean, he stretched himself in a few movies okay. that we might still watch. We might watch The Cane Mutiny, which is one of his later films. Mm-hmm. And the African Queen, I think he's a slightly different character in that. But no, I mean, I wouldn't say he has a huge no. range. I don't know that movie stars at that time needed to have <laughs> range that kind of range. They were really personas. Yeah. And he is. And he's very much so the coolest, smartest guy in the room. And that sort of gets him out of just about every jam that he gets into, even when people are pointing guns at him, which I find a little bit frustrating because I'm just like, you could just shoot him. Um, But (laughs) the fact that he was able to sort of talk the quote unquote big bad into basically like committing suicide at the end of it. I'm just like, really? So, yeah. And then Bacall, I think, was really good in a couple scenes. And okay, everywhere else. And I was actually more interested and more intrigued by the actress that was playing her sister, <laughs> Martha, Carmen. Martha Vickers. Yes. Um, who just seemed to be a little bit more alive and just a mm. little... And it, partly because she's playing the crazier role, right? And so right. That just, the, the parts are written right. that way, right. But I just wanted to spend more time with her. You were not alone in that. Yeah. Martha Vickers, everyone who saw the first cut of the movie thought Martha Vickers was overshadowing Lauren Bacall. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That that was a problem. Including Raymond Chandler, apparently, who said that she was, you know, outclassing Bacall in every way. So her part got cut back. See, I'd be pissed off. Yeah. I I would actually like to see all the footage of Martha Vickers that ended up on the cutting room floor, because I think she's great. Yeah. I mean, even her just entrance into the film is one of the most sort of electric moments mm-hmm. where she's walking down the stairs and those that was way too short shorts. <laughs> and that exchange that she has with Bogart is playful and odd and yeah, it was just I slutty. Just, and slu- so slutty. <laughs> and it reminded me actually of again coming back to like this this comparison with the big like she's bunny. Right. Except right. a bit like you know, I'll you know, I'll suck your cock for a hundred dollars. But Brant can't watch. Um well, William Faulkner couldn't write that dialogue. Exactly. But it's like she's bunny, but much more interesting and much more sort of complex and troubled. Mm-hmm. Good morning. You're not very tall, are you? Yeah, well, I, uh, I tried to be. Not bad looking. Well, you probably know it. Thank you. What's your name? Riley, Dorgas Riley. <laughs> That's a funny kind of name. You think so? Uh, what are you, a prize fighter? No, I'm a shamus. What's a shamus? It's a private detective. You're making fun of me. Uh-huh. You're cute. The general will see you now, sir. Uh, who's that? Miss Carmen Sternwood, sir. Not a wiener, she's old enough. Yes, sir. So, yeah, I would have wanted to spend more time with her character. Okay, well, we'll we'll definitely talk about Carmen more. But it sounds like Lauren Bacall didn't 
impress you that much, which is surprising. Not so. I mean, on first impression, the first time I meet Carmen and the first time I meet Bacall, it was definitely Carmen that I was like, oh, who's that? Now, having said that, Bacall and Bogey absolutely do have some really just great scenes together where their banter is on point and you can see why, you, you know, you do see them fall in love on screen. Mm-hmm. I mean, that whole exchange with them in the bar about horse racing. <laughs> about <a> horse, <laughs> yes, that was. And that was one of the reshot scenes and they brought in, uh, I think it was Jewel, I forget which of the Epstein brothers it was. I think it was Julius Epstein who had written Casablanca mm-hmm. to come in and punch up that dialogue. Mm-hmm. And that is classic Hayes Code sexual yep. innuendo, slip it by the censors. Mm-hmm. Tell me, uh, what do you usually do when you're not working? Mm. Play the horses, fool around. No women? Well, I'm generally working on something most of the time. Could that be stressed to include me? Well, I like you. I told you that before. I like hearing you say it. Hmm. But you didn't do much about it. Well, neither did you. Well, speaking of horses, I like to play them myself. But I like to see them work out a little first. See if they're front runners or come from behind. Find out what their whole card is. What makes them run. Find out mine? I think so. Go ahead. I'd say you don't like to be rated. You like to get out in front. Open up a lead. Take a little breather in the back stretch and then come home free. You don't like to be rated yourself. I haven't met anyone yet that could do it. Any suggestions? Well, I can't tell till I've seen you over a distance of ground. You've got a touch of class, but uh, I don't know how, how far you can go. A lot depends on who's in the saddle. Go ahead, Marla. I like the way you work. In case you don't know it, you're doing all right. The censor, you wonder if the censors just didn't care or did they really miss? I mean, there was no way you couldn't miss that because she was basically like, you know, I like to ride you and see how, like, it's just. A lot depends on who's in the saddle, she says. So it wasn't subtle, but (laughs) so I think it was just like, okay, we'll let this go. Mm -hmm. But you started out this conversation, you know, acting as though Bogart was preying on poor, innocent little 19-year-old. Well, she's obviously not playing a 19-year-old in this film. I mean, tell me, I think he was outgunned, really. she looks, you know... She does not look like a 19-year-old young lady. I mean, I think even without, like, again, I, I think she could do better than Humphrey Bogart. But Bogart is short. He's not particularly <laughs> he is, attractive. As, as people in the movie keep, you're not very tall, are you? Everyone <laughs> says when they meet him. Which, in the book, Philip Marlowe is tall, yeah. so they just had to switch those lines. He's just, he's he's all cool. Like, it's all just, so you either fall in love with the cool or you don't. Otherwise, mm. it's like, why the hell would Lauren McCall be with Humphrey Bogart? And he sweats like an alcoholic. And all, So there's a whole bunch of reasons why I'm like, I don't get the Humphrey Bogart thing. But every woman in the movie... Swoons over him, just like drops the panties. (laughs) The girl in the bookstore. Oh, we have to talk. I mean, that that is Dorothy Malone. And she's actually, again, talk about another woman who I think met Bogart where he was Mm -hmm. and almost stole the scene from him. She did, almost stole the movie. Yeah. Oh, I I see. You begin to interest me, vaguely. Yeah, I'm a private dick on a case. Perhaps I'm asking too much, although it doesn't seem too much to me, somehow. Well, Geiger's in his early 40s, medium height, fattish, soft all over, Charlie Chan mustache, well-dressed, wears a black hat, affects the knowledge of antiques and hasn't any, and, oh yes, I think his left eye is glass. 
Like a good cop. Thanks. Going to wait for him to come out? Yeah. It'll close for another hour or so. It's raining pretty hard. I got my car. Yeah, that's right, it is, isn't it? You know, it just happened. I got a bottle of pretty good rye in my pocket. I'd a lot rather get wet in here. Well. Looks like we're closed for the rest of the afternoon. Yeah, I mean, that... I'm, I'm not sure that's, you know, where my sexuality formed, but the... <laughs> The, the, book, the hot, bookish mm-hmm. girl in glasses. Yeah, Takes the that's... glasses off, lets the hair down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's your favorite. That's one of your favorite tropes. The, <laughs> the take the glasses off and let the hair down. All of a trope. sudden, this ugly woman becomes so beautiful <laughs> now that you've taken glasses off. Yeah, so yeah. nice idea. Um, but yeah, that scene between them. And again, this idea of like, you know, it wasn't subtle at all because uh, it's raining outside. <laughs> and he said something about like, I'd rather get wet in here. And it's like, oh, really? <laughs> So <laughs> it's not. And that's a scene actually in the book he does not sleep with that woman. Mm. That was a scene that they rewrote after they saw Dorothy Malone or mm-hmm. after they cast Dorothy Malone and mm-hmm. said, "You know what? There's something here." Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean there's cab drivers yeah. and waitresses, librarians yeah. and cigarette girls mm-hmm. in the casino and They are all in love with They're all to use the phrase you've used before, dickmotized. Dickmotized. <laughs> yes. And again, I do not I don't get it. All right. Well, let's I don't think we we can't possibly go through the whole plot of this movie, but <laughs> No, it doesn't matter. So we we start with with his, you know, arrival at the manor to meet with General Sternwood. Mhm. Which is a very, I mean, it's in the book, but it's also a very Faulknerian scene. It's that sort of Southern Gothic. They're in that greenhouse, sweating ridiculously. Bogart is just drenched in sweat mm-hmm. as he sits there in that hot house. And the general's kind of a sinister sort of character. I mean, he's he does not speak of his children very well. Who's Arthur Gwen Geiger? I haven't the faintest idea. Did you ask her? No, and I don't intend to. I did, she'd just suck her thumb and look coy. Yeah, I met her in the hall and she did that to me. Then she tried to sit on my lap while I was standing up. Well? Your other daughter, Mrs. Rutledge, she mixed up in this? No. They like, they run around together? They're alike only in having the same corrupt blood. Vivian is spoilt, exacting, smart, and ruthless. Carmen is still a little child who likes to pull the wings off flies. I assume they have all the usual vices, besides those they've invented for themselves. If I seem a bit sinister as a parent, Mr. Marlowe, it's because my hold on life is too slight to include any Victorian hypocrisy. I need hardly add that any man who has lived as I have and who indulges for the first time in parenthood at my age deserves all he gets. I actually appreciate that. I like parents that know who their children are. Like, I got some hot-ass daughters, so... I assume they have all the usual vices, he says. But and... he also admitted that he had lived a life of, you know, debauchery, and mm. now he was living a life of debilitating illness and age, and so they didn't fall too far from the tree. And this is where we first hear the name of Sean Regan, which is the main one of those characters you were talking about who we never see, right. we never meet. Mm-hmm. And yet he's somehow... He's sort of the engine that drove the plot, us, yeah. Right. In the book, he was actually 
married to Vivian. Mm-hmm. She was Mrs. Regan in the book. She wasn't Mrs. Rutledge or whatever mm-hmm. she is in the movie. I'm not sure why they is probably a Hayes Code thing, too. There were all these rules about what a husband and a wife could do, that you couldn't get away with adultery or murdering somebody. Or, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what the change, what the reason for the change was there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's the mystery that no one ever actually tells him to solve, but somehow that's what he's... That's the root of this whole conspiracy mm-hmm. somehow. Originally, all they asked him to do was deal with a blackmail right. situation. Carmen has unpaid debts. Yes, from Mr. Geiger. That we're told is about gambling, but it's clear it's not actually, <laughs> not actually, about, actually gambling. about gambling. <laughs> yes. And Geiger, I think Geiger we only see... No, no, we see him alive for a second. Yeah. But he's another character who doesn't really no, yeah. register at all. We don't really get to know him at all, even though he's... Again, important. Mm-hmm. So did you figure out what was going on with Geiger? Not really. Um, <laughs> I didn't get what the hell was going on with the antique store, the antique bookstore, until pretty late when I was like, oh, is he just running pornography out of there? Like, Yeah. Because the, the store clerk that he has working there obviously knew nothing about antiquities or antique books. <laughs> Agnes, who, so I was just like, who actually is kind of a great character. She is a really cool character, actually. So it took me a little while to be like, oh, okay, so he's just running porn out of there. Right. Basically, it, it was a porn, this is, you know, what you got to do pre-internet, I guess. <laughs> it was a porn lending library. You got to jack off manually. got to jack off manually mm-hmm. and you borrow porn. Mm-hmm. From Geiger, like a library. Is it Dewey Decimal System, do you think? <laughs> he had his own system. That's what the code, <laughs> the book of code See, is. See, I didn't even get that part. Okay. Right. All so right. that was like his customer name. <laughs> and I assumed like probably what product they had currently okay. leased out. Yeah, that was a question. I was like, I don't know what the fuck that was. Okay, got yeah. it. All right. <laughs> so then after he's killed, Joe Brody and Agnes have cleaned out the store. So right. they now have the porn. Right. Because they're going to run the porn business. But Bogart has the customer list. Right. So that's where the negotiations begin there. Ah, uh, okay. But okay, so let's let's back up now. So now we're Geiger is blackmailing General Sternwood about Carmen's debts. Right. Which we find out is because she's been taking nude photographs with Geiger. Is that not... See, it's too... <laughs> no. Here's... And again, a lot of this is supposition. Because I was thinking about that and I was realizing, I don't actually know why. And I've read the book, but I don't remember. I think it must have been drugs. I think she was getting drugs from Geiger mm-hmm. and then paying for that by letting him take nude pictures of her. Okay. I mean, she was obviously high on something when we see her right. at Geiger's place. Right. I don't know. But she wouldn't have been paying him no. to pose nude for him. No. So if she owed him money, it had to be for something else. And mm-hmm. I'm assuming that was drugs. And then probably she was paying that off by posing nude for him. Even though when we see her, she's, she's not fully nude. dressed. Which, again, is one of the problems yeah. <laughs> with the censorship question. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, she was supposed to be nude there. And she was supposed to be nude in Bogey's bed later in the movie. He comes into his office. And she's there. And she's there. Mm -hmm. But yes, in the book, she is naked in his bed and he throws her out. In the book, he he spends a good paragraph admiring her body. And then he says, I looked her over without either embarrassment or ruddishness. As a naked girl, she was not there in that room at all. She was just a dope. To me, she was always just a dope. Okay, again. (laughs) Look at yourself. And look at this young lady. Maybe, you know, check the, the ego there a little bit. So, yeah, so then he stakes out Geiger's house. He sees Carmen go in. There's a flash of light. There's a gunshot. There's cars streaming Mm -hmm. away. He goes in. He finds Carmen zonked out of her skull. And Geiger's dead on the floor. Yes. 
that's is that the that's the first just the first of many murders yes in this movie mm-hmm. okay so who killed geiger i think we figure out that <laughs> brody killed geiger nope. no no brody killed the other um no oh the other chauffeur right who was in love with carmen right killed geiger yeah who, do we even meet him? Nope. Yeah. Okay. We never see him. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he was blanking on me. Yes. So the chauffeur who was in love with Carmen killed Geiger because he right. was taking advantage of Carmen. So the, show, the chauffeur, Owen Taylor, kills Geiger. Yes. Grabs the film. The film out of the camera. The pictures or yep. whatever. Why he doesn't take Carmen away from there is unclear. No. But basically he leaves. We find out later Joe Brody. Follows him. Had also been yeah. staking the house out. And he follows Taylor. And... Taylor is the the one, as we discussed earlier, that's the murder. Nobody knows who did it. Right. But don't um, we think Brody Raymond. did it? Well, that's... Brody says, I, just, I knocked him out and took the pictures right. away from him and then left him in his car. Yeah. So there aren't a lot of other suspects. No. I don't think it's that as confusing as people make no. it out to be. I think he killed him. I mean, either that or then Owen Taylor came to... And drove off And decided cliff. to kill himself by driving his car off the pier. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. No. It doesn't. So, okay, sure. Let's you and I decide Joe Brody killed. Can we also talk about how convenient it is that everyone has their name on their car? (laughs) I think that was a real thing. I'm not sure about that. It may have been. I just feel like that's super convenient for a PI to just be able to sort of look in and say, okay, this car is registered to Carmen, whatever her name is, and this one's registered to John Brody, and this one's registered. It it became in handy throughout the film. (laughs) Again, this was pre-internet. You couldn't just look people up. I know, but I I didn't realize that that was a thing. So I didn't know that it was just like... I, I honestly don't know if that was a real thing. Printed or... on the car. So I was just like, right. I've seen it in a lot of movies, so I assume it okay, was a real well, thing. But maybe it was thing. invented for the convenience of screenwriters. <laughs> okay, so where are we now? So... Taylor's been killed. Geiger's been killed. So Bogart finds a stoned Carmen and a dead Geiger at Geiger's place. Smacks Carmen around a bit. He's very mean to her. Um... <laughs> Tries to figure out, get from her what happened. She obviously has no idea what happened. Looks for the film in the camera, doesn't find it. That's when he finds Geiger's code book, I guess, right. of his customers. So he takes Carmen out of there and takes her back home and basically says to Vivian, you know, if anybody asked, she was here all night. I wasn't here. Mm-hmm. Deal with the car or whatever. So he's not that mean to her. He, you know, protects I mean, her from a murder rap. Not for the last time in the movie. <laughs> He's judgy, though. (laughs) And that's all about he liked the father. Yes. And then eventually he comes to like Vivian, too. So, But no, he doesn't think much of Carmen. No. I will also concede with this movie, I'm not sure if this contributes, I think it does contribute a little bit to the confusion about it. I don't think any of the bad guys are particularly memorable. Any of those characters. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't spend a lot of time with any of them, really. Like, I've I've seen this movie a dozen times, and I still get Joe Brody and Eddie Mars mixed up. They're, very, they're both very sort of generic mm-hmm. guys. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think in the Maltese Falcon, all of those characters were, were very clearly delineated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They were all, I mean, it was Peter Lorre and Sidney Greenstreet and right. Elijah Cook and all these guys that were very memorable. Here, they're all, they're all a little bland. Yeah. Well, none of them seem to be particularly evil. They all seem like pretty... Everybody's just making a living. Yeah, grunty sort of hustle dude. Like, it's just not... So it's also like, yeah, you're... That's what you said about Friday last week. Everybody's just hustling. But this know? is... I mean, but these people are like... They have other things they could be doing. They all have money. <laughs> so it's just... 
like there's no grand scheme. It's just, you know, somebody died. So oh, that's lucky. I can steal his porn collection and sell his porn. And it's just sort of like, okay, a, well you want to talk about Agnes then? This is Sonia Darren mm-hmm. as Agnes. Agnes is a survivor. <laughs> she often picks the wrong horse, but she is a survivor. I mean, her first sort of ride to success was going to be Geiger and then he died. And then she chose Brody. Mm-hmm. And then Brody died. <laughs> and then she chose... What the fuck was that? Jonesy. Jonesy, who was just... <laughs> I love Jonesy. Such a sad sack. <laughs> Could barely fill out fill out his coat. Um, and he that died. That was Elijah Cook again. Yeah. He died. So, mm-hmm. you know, she picks the wrong men. She said that. She knows that about herself, though. Yeah, she, she does. She says... Uh, She's this always a half smart guy, never a guy who's smart all, all the, the way, way around, around the course. So, you know, it's good to have some self-awareness. <laughs> you got off easy, Joe. Hmm. What's the matter, sugar? He gives me a pain in my... That goes for me, too. Well, you got your pictures, get out. Where does he give you a pain? Right in Look, my... get out. Not yet. We got a few things to straighten out. I told you to get out. Go on, Joe. What difference does it make now? Why'd you put the B on Mrs. Rutledge? Well, I... Tapped the old man once six or seven months ago. I figured it might not work twice. Well, what made you think Mrs. Rutledge wouldn't tell him about it? How well do you know her? We'll pass that. Well, she gets around. I figured she might have a thing or two she wouldn't want the old man to know. That's a little weak, but we'll pass that too. Say, Joe, how'd you get that picture? Look, you got what you came for, and you got it cheap. I don't know anything about a picture. Do I, Agnes? Yeah, but Joe, you just oh, gave me the picture. Oh, I have smart guy. That's what I always draw. Never once a man who's smart all the way around the course. Never once. I hate you much, sugar. You and every other man I've ever met. But she gets, you know, she's able to get a couple thousand dollars or something from... A couple hundred, I couple, think sorry, it is, couple, yeah. <laughs> sorry, a couple hundred She gets to, enough money to leave town. To get out of town. Of movie, and, and She lives. That's so all she gets that's, out of it. Yeah, that's you know, true. Compared to all of the gentlemen around her, she survives <laughs> and gets the hell out of there, so... Marlo likes her, too, though. You can tell Marlo. He do, I think he respects Again, you gotta respect the hustle a little bit. She's like, he gives me a pain in my... He's like, where does he give you a pain? <laughs> Right in my... They're all, you know, they're like low-level Trump administration officials. <laughs> like, it's just like, you're just here to grift. This is the banality of evil. Yeah, so yeah. you're not particularly interesting. You're just here for the grift, and eventually you're all going to fall. Okay, so who who kills Brody? The dude. Um, the dude? The dude that we see, I don't know any Lebowski? of these white people's names. The dude that we see in the back of the porn shop <laughs> yeah, packing the, up the young, porn. The young guy. Right. Carol Lundgren. Yes. So are you saying he was gay with... Yep. Where did you see that? <laughs> it's it's just there. It's not, again, the movie glosses over it so completely that you would never even know that. But yes, he and Geiger were lovers, and that's why... Right, but what clue... He killed Brody because he thought Brody killed Geiger. Right, no, I get that. Okay. But I thought that was just sort of underling loyalty. I didn't know that that was love. Well... Because I don't remember ever seeing a scene where they were even together, he and Geiger. The only time we see Geiger alive is when he comes out of the bookstore and Lundgren is holding the umbrella for him and putting him in the car. That's code for gay? It's not. It's not as heavily (laughs) coded as, like, (laughs) Peter Lorre's character in The Maltese Falcon was heavily coded as gay. Yes. This, I think they just kind of took it. Took it all out. We sort of have to infer. Okay. That's a big ass jump to me. He does lay Geiger lovingly out on the bed in his apartment and stuff like that, but I think it's did we know that he did that? I didn't know who had... I think we did know that, okay. yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> See, it's all too subtle by half for me because I'm just like, I don't know what the fuck's going on. <laughs> I'm just saying the, like, five minutes we spend listening to Lauren Bacall sing that 
terrible song <laughs> in that casino. It could have been spent on some helpful exposition. He stalked her in the choppers. Such a sweet, sweet guy was he. And her tears flowed like wine. Yes, her tears flowed like wine. She's a real sad tomato. She's a busted valentine. Knows her mama done told her that a man is darned unkind. <laughs> you know what that reminded me of? Uh, trading Places. Trading Places? Constance Fry. Oh. <laughs> Constance Fry. Anytime you call. This was another, and that I think that was another one of those scenes that was added later, probably at the request of Lauren McCall's mm-hmm. agent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you see that in a lot of movies of this time, where it's just like, just give the starlet Random a musical, musical number. Interlude. Yeah, right. they could have cut it, it. It doesn't belong it in this movie nothing. at all. Like, what the fuck is happening? Like, can we just get somebody <laughs> telling me what's going on and not have to watch her sing this terrible song in front of these like waspy ass people? That whole scene at the casino doesn't make a lot of sense. No. Um, but that's where we're supposed to deduce that she and... Eddie Mars. Right. I was going to say Brody. Eddie right. Mars. See, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> she and Eddie Mars are in sort of cahoots and have right. this whole plan to make it look like they are. Right. Because he lets her win a lot of money right. and then sends somebody around to take the money but away from her. But she didn't actually get the money. But she didn't actually right. get... It's just... It's, and that was all staged for Bogarts. Right. So that he would think that she and Mars were in a relationship or... It's in, way convoluted. Yeah, again, I'm like, I just... This... I don't know that this movie is worth the work. The mental work that you have to do. But it doesn't matter. That's the thing. I can see... I guess I didn't enjoy it enough for it not to matter. Okay. Whereas The Big Lebowski, I enjoy enough that none of it needs to make sense. This... And again, it may be because so many of the characters are just like, I don't even remember who you are. So <laughs> it's just... So then you have to be very invested in... Bogey and Bacall. Bogey and Bacall. Right. So, okay. And I'm just not... I don't you think weren't. I am. I am not. I, the, love, than, the love story didn't no, work for you? Other than the... Again, I'm always just like... Ugh. Uh, <laughs> other than the scene where they're at the bar talking about horse racing, but uh, not really talking about horse, horse racing. Or the scene in the office where they call the police together and hand the phone back and forth. I like that scene. That was all right. But it's just like... <laughs> yeah, I just... No. Hmm. That's unfortunate. I know. I wanted to be in it, and I just couldn't. I couldn't get there. Yeah, I mean, if if the if the Bogey Bacall scenes aren't working for you, I can see this movie. I didn't say be... they didn't tell. Like again, the bar scene, mm-hmm. that whole exchange. I get it. I, I okay. can see it. The scene in the car where they actually make out. No, because he's like he pulls away, and there's all this moisture around her <laughs> mouth, and I'm just, <laughs> I'm just like, is he sweating on her? Can she... <laughs> What I like about that scene is how far in the car she is slouched She's totally down. slumped down as if she's not super into it. Because she was quite a bit taller than yeah, Bogart was. it was just like, yeah, that was, I didn't find that. And when they were standing, Bogart could be wearing a lifts or, yeah. you know, standing on something or whatever. But sitting, both of them sitting down, she has to slouch yeah. down to like the, almost a seat level so he can lean in over her. I just know. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't get into it. I'm sorry. All right, well, so so what was going on with Eddie Mars? Maybe you just explain that for me. Okay, give me a second. Let me, uh, oh, right. Eddie Mars, if I'm putting it together correctly, which I'm very likely not, 
help to get rid of Regan's body. Right. The official, well, not the official story, but the, the rumor is Sean Regan ran off with Eddie Mars's wife. Wife, right. Right. But then towards the end of the movie, we see that Mars's wife has been hiding out at some, like, flop house somewhere. Um, <laughs> and again, why would she agree to that? But anyway, um, so that's obviously not true. And then we realize that, yes, Regan is dead. And that Carmen killed Regan because he had sort of, like, spurned her advance Mm, right. She had come on to him just like she right. came on to Bogart. And he was like not interested. And so she's like, oh, I'm going to kill you. Which again, yeah. makes her a much more interesting character to spend time with. <laughs> she's she's the hero in this movie <laughs> as far as you're concerned, is. isn't she? Like, What's going on with Carmen? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so Vivian being very protective of her sister went to Mars and was like, I need help is what I'm thinking. Like we need to get rid of the body and we need to make it so that nobody knows that my sister killed him. And then in order to get him engaged, she obviously had to give him something. I don't know. I, I don't know if that was she slept with him or oh, I, I don't gave him money. I don't. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so that's how he's tied into it, from what I can tell. Okay, well, that's a little darker even than I think what the real story is. <laughs> I think what you just said is all true in the book. I think the movie, again, we got Hayes Code problems, Mm -hmm. makes it all a little bit more Very complicated. Very complicated. Because, and again, some of this might have just missed the censors, Mm -hmm. but the Hayes Code says no one is allowed to get away with murder. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you murder someone or you're accomplice to murder, you have to go down for it at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. By that logic, Vivian should not get off scot free, and Carmen, and certainly Carmen <laughs> should not be allowed to just be sent off to an institution right. to cure her nymphomania. Exactly. <laughs> Again, more interesting story of like, okay, this is how we're treating women who are quote unquote troubled is we're going to send them to an institution. But okay, yes, continue. Right. So at the end of the movie, officially, Eddie Mars killed. Sean Regan. Yes. Bogart is going to pin it on Eddie Mars. Right. Who's dead at this point, so, you know, what does he care? Right. But that all should have been against the rules, according to the Hayes Code. Mm -hmm. So I think the movie leaves it a little ambiguous as to whether Eddie Mars really did kill Regan. I think in the movie, Vivian is not involved in that. I think in the movie, at best, Carmen killed Regan, Mm -hmm. Eddie Mars covered it up, and then he blackmailed Vivian about it. Okay. Or Eddie Mars killed Regan and told Vivian that Carmen killed him and blackmailed her. Mm. I think that's I think that's how they got around the Hayes Code thing is that it's a little ambiguous. Okay. But yeah, Carmen killed Regan. Yeah. <laughs> She did. I think in the book, she actually tries to kill Bogart. Well, she did try to bite him to death in that one scene. <laughs> She's very oral. She's always got her thumb in her mouth. She's very oral. Bogart's always pulling her hand out of her mouth. Okay, have we covered all the murders here? Let's see. Well, we got uh, Bogart did, did kill one person. He killed Canino. He killed Canino. Canino, who's one of those characters who's introduced in the last 10 yeah. minutes of the movie that suddenly becomes super important. He's a fucking trench we coat. We have never seen him That's before. That's all we know. He's a trench coat. Yeah. Um, Until he turns up to kill poor Jonesy. Yeah. And he gives us, like, he gives him poison. He's like, here, drink this. It's not poison. And, but it's poison. <laughs> and then he says, what are you, chicken? What are you, can't handle your liquor? Go ahead, drink. So, yeah, so Bogey does kill one person. He does kill Canino. He kills Canino, right. Canino killed Jonesy, and then, yeah, Mars's, Eddie Mars' own gang kills him, and that's the final scene you were talking about. Yes. You walked in here without a gun. You were going to sit there and agree to everything, just like you're doing now. When I went out that door, things were going to be different. That's what those boys are doing out there. But everything's changed now, Eddie, because I got here first. All right, Angel, get down on the floor. Don't get excited, Marlowe. If anything happens in here, if there's any shooting, you'll just... What do you think's gonna happen now? Now what are you boys gonna think? What'll they do to the first one that goes out that door? Who's it gonna be, Eddie, you or me? Now look, Marlowe, you look at this. 
What's the matter? Haven't you ever seen a gun before? What do you want me to do? Count three like they do in the movies? That's what Canino said to little Jonesy. Now don't go crazy. And Jonesy took it better than your take. That's one, Eddie. Don't, Marlo, don't. Don't. It's two, Eddie. Don't shoot, it's me, you, you had some problems with that scene? Well, because Humphrey Bogart's just sitting there like, okay, well, you can stand here and get shot by me, or you can go outside and risk getting <laughs> shot by your boys. And he goes outside. <laughs> in the dark, in the fucking fog. Like, that's probably not, oh, that was a bad bet. Just, nope. Well, so the thing on that was, he didn't have a gun. Eddie Mars didn't have a gun. That's His true. boys would have known he did, he went into the house without a gun. Mm-hmm. So then when Bogart shoots the gun, he, sa- he says, "What's go- now what do you think is going to happen? They're going to come in here the next, that the I next shot t- you. The yeah. next person who goes through that door, what do you think is going to happen to him? Yeah. Which is assuming a lot. Yes. It's assuming, for one thing, that Eddie Mars's goons are just going to open fire without even looking at who they're shooting at. Which apparently they did. Which so. is exactly what happens. But, yeah. Uh, that I think I read was another another change that there was there was something there was some other ending that mm-hmm. the Hayes people objected to, and so that they came up with this idea of okay, well Eddie Murray gets shot by his own man, sure, exiting exiting the building. I will say mm-hmm. there are a lot of dead bodies collecting around Bogart and Vivian and Carmen. And it seems very easy for Bogart to pick up the phone to call his police friend and say, yep, got some more dead bodies for you. This is who did it. <laughs> no questions asked. No investigation. So that's a, that's a little bit concerning. But That's, that's kind of how these stories always work, though. <laughs> that's sort of the P.I. model. At best, the cops get a little cranky with, with the private investigators mm-hmm. for, you know, going too far, withholding information or whatever. But yeah, this this is why I think it's a good life. I think you and I should consider opening up. a lot a, of dead bodies to be like, I think like, you okay, and I should consider opening a private investigation I'm not interested in that. Agency. I'm really not interested in it. Why not? I think we'd be good at it. We would be terrible. One, well, I'm not you really... You could be my girl Friday. Okay. So you're already just going to set us up <laughs> in this sort of sexist trope, are you? <laughs> I am no one's girl Friday. Fine, I'll be your girl Friday. You don't look that good in a dress. <laughs> If you look like Carmen in those shorts, then absolutely. <laughs> so basically your favorite part of the movie was Carmen. Yes. Okay. I wanted to spend more time with Carmen. Okay. Yes. Me too. Okay. <laughs> Frankly, I don't know what Bogart was thinking. He might he might have picked the wrong sister. He was lucky to pick anybody. <laughs> Just damp and short and <laughs> damp. He was like damp through the whole thing. <laughs> You know how alcoholics have that, like, sweat? That they're always just sweating because their pores are just oozing alcohol. It's just, nope. I think I only see the bogey thing when he's in a suit in Casablanca. A crisp, clean, white suit. You just reminded me of... I went, we, didn't, we didn't really talk about Raymond Chandler, who we should talk about sometime. He was, to me, one of the greatest American writers. Mm-hmm. And never taken seriously during his lifetime because mm-hmm. he wrote mysteries. Mm-hmm. But I, I pulled a few Chandler-isms... But you just reminded me of this passage from his book, The Lady in the Lake. I smelled of gin, not just casually, as if I had taken four or five drinks of a winter morning to get out of bed on, but as if the Pacific Ocean was pure gin and I had nosedived off the boat deck. The gin was in my hair and eyebrows, on my chin and under my chin. It was on my shirt. I smelt like dead toads. First of all, four or five (laughs) drinks to get out of bed is a problem. (laughs) 
<laughs> serious problem. <laughs> but second of all, yes, that that's how that's that's how Bogart Bogey looked in this me. movie. Like, uh, Bogart was in fact drinking. I know a lot, you. I know. And Howard Hawks so... had trouble had trouble with him because yeah, of that. I just can't. I don't know. This, this was at the point where he was not divorced yet mm-hmm. and still, you know, indecisive between Bacall and Mayo. And yeah, he was he was drinking a lot. Yeah, he drank a lot all his life. I think. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry this wasn't a big hit with you. It wasn't a bomb. It wasn't it was a just, bomb, but you know. I love this. I love this movie. Just the dialogue mm-hmm. I love in this movie. Mm-hmm. Who are you, soldier? Marla's my name. I'm a private detective. Who's the girl? A client of mine. Geiger tried to throw a loop on us, so we came up here to talk things over. Convenient, the door being open when you didn't have a key. Huh? Yeah, wasn't it? By the way, how'd you happen to have one? Is that any of your business? I could make it my business. I could make your business mine. Well, you wouldn't like it. The pay's too small. All right. I own this house. Geiger's my tenant. Now, what do you think of it? Well, you know some nice people. I take them as they come. Got any good ideas, soldier? One or two. Somebody gunned Geiger, or somebody got gunned by Geiger who ran away, or he had meat for dinner and likes to do his butchering in the parlor. No, I don't like it either. And I do think there are not a lot of screen couples that have had the same kind of chemistry that Bogey and Bacall have on screen. Mm-hmm. Sure. I would like to see Agnes and Carmen as like a Thelma and Louise sort of film. That would actually be... you imagine the two of them... Driving across the country, just murdering dudes. I gotta be honest, I would watch the shit out That's of that what I'm movie. Saying. So much better. <laughs> Carmen sucks her thumb, dude dies. Are they a couple in this movie? Ooh. Agnes is giving up men. Sure, mm-hmm. I think so. I think that would be great. I don't think Carmen would need a lot of convincing. Carmen no, seems Carmen, pretty game for, she's, for she's, anything. She basically just wants to be enjoyed. <laughs> so she needs attention and she will take it wherever she can get it. Okay, well, look for our fanfic <laughs> on Agnes and Carmen. They're both alive at the end of the movie, so they it's, are. it's an open saying. road for them. That's what I'm saying. It's a much okay. more interesting film. Let's let's go write that. Okay. Okay. That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Nakia, next week, for no particular reason other than it's currently playing on Netflix and that Lewis Gossett Jr. is currently slaying on HBO's Watchmen. I think we're going to watch the movie that won him an Oscar, Taylor Hackford's An Officer and a Gentleman from 1982. You eyeballing me, boy? <laughs> is that all you know about that? Is that one line? Is there anything else? Is that why he won the Oscar? He won the Oscar for saying, you eyeballing me, boy. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. Yep. That's what he won the so. Oscar for. It's one of your favorite kinds of characters. It's the gruff Black drill sergeant. yelling mm-hmm. at the punk. Exactly. Yep. It's my favorite. <laughs> I think you're going to enjoy that. As I said, for those of you watching along at home, An Officer and a Gentleman is currently streaming on Netflix, and it's available to rent from Amazon, iTunes, and other streaming services. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, follow us on Twitter at Free Range Critic, and subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. In any of these places, we encourage you to leave a comment on the show or suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means conning your partner into watching movies they really, really don't want to watch. But Chandler was great with those similes. That's what he's he's most known for. I think I think your wit is very Chandler-esque sometimes. I don't know how to take that. <laughs> like when we a few episodes ago when we watched Phenomena, mm-hmm. there's a deformed child in there, and you said he had a face like a melted thumb. He did. That yes. is a very Chandler-esque <laughs> expression. Somewhere he describes someone as having a face like a collapsed lung, Ooh, which is a good. That's a good one, right? All right. <laughs> My favorite simile of his is somewhere he says, I lit a cigarette, it tasted like a plumber's handkerchief. Mm. Right? That's good. It's all about the specificity. Very descriptive. Yes.